you know, praying over these things is really important. So, Lord, we thank you as we pray over these sermons and them getting out where they need to. Lord, we come before you in Jesus' name and through his blood. We agree together as a church in unity over the preaching of the word. And, Lord, I ask you tonight, and I thank you for the Holy Spirit moving upon every single one of us. Lord, the Holy Spirit, he honors the word of God. And let your Holy Spirit move upon every person that's going to be hearing this live, those that are going to hear this through recordings, to help every one of us have good, fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, that our minds will be locked in and focused to receive all that God has for us, that we won't be distracted by anything, but our minds are focused. And the Holy Spirit, to help us have eyes and ears of the Spirit and good soil in our hearts, that as you speak through me, Lord, your living seeds are true, sown into good, fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, watered by the Holy Spirit, and cause those seeds of truth to take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest, a harvest that will remain. It'll be fruitful and remain till Jesus comes. And Lord, we believe you tonight for your word, the wind of your spirit to carry this out among the nations of the earth. It's going to get where it needs to accomplish what it needs to. Let there be the washing of the water of the word. Let there be a holy conviction, a fear of God, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, Father, that will move upon people that hear this to get right and make sure that we examine ourselves. It's so important. And Lord, we thank you for this and we submit it unto you. And the Bible says that the birds of the air try to steal the seed. So, Lord, we submit this unto you, and we resist the devil. We must flee, and as a church, we agree together that we bind in Jesus' name every single thing, every single spirit that would try to hinder, distract, oppress, or resist this word from getting where it's supposed to and accomplishing that which it's supposed to do. We bind you in Jesus' name. We command you to back off right now. Lord, let your angels go and clear that out completely, that every bit of warfare is removed, and we stand on the promise, Lord, that your word will not return void, but it will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. And I believe this is what the, the Holy Spirit is speaking in this time. And so, Lord, we release this from River of Life as a church, this word to go out to the nations. And, Lord, we believe you for everything being accomplished through it. Your will to be done. And we expect it. We agree together as two touching this tonight. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as you get into this tonight with me, let's go to Revelation chapter 5. We're dealing with part 9, and it is the scroll with seven seals. And I believe this will be really eye-opening tonight because we're going to see what the scroll is. A lot of people read the book of Revelation and don't really understand certain things. But once you understand what this scroll actually is, and then you understand the seals and their significance. I believe it will really open up Revelation to understand what God is saying through Revelation 5 and 6. Which I believe it is very possible. Those that, are, that follow our ministry, if you'll listen to this sermon and next week's sermon. And just with an open heart and open mind. I believe that, that you'll probably agree with me by the end of it. That it is very possible that some of this is actually happening right now it is very possible i'm not saying it emphatically or making a doctrine but i do believe it is very possible and i would say in my opinion highly likely that these this scroll the seals are possibly being popped right now in our day so anyway you'll have to hear this sermon in next week to see why i say that but revelation chapter 5 we're going through the entire book of Revelation. 
So I'm going to read every bit of it to you, okay? So if you want to follow along, I'm in chapter 5, starting with verse 1. And it says this, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So I want you, as we go through this, I want you to kind of use your imagination. I want you to picture a scroll that's rolled up, and it has seven seals. And I put some kind of a picture on here, at least give you some kind of an idea. But the way those seals were is that there would be hot wax that's dripped on that part, the flap that seals it. There would be hot wax dripped there. And many times somebody would use like a ring and while the wax was still hot, they would press that ring down on it as a seal to put some kind of an insignia. Because once that seal was broken and it was open, then you knew that, for example, as I teach tonight later, you'll see what I mean, that it could have been tampered with somehow. And so that it was very important that those seals were not open until the proper time. So this was a scroll. It was written on the inside and on the back. It was rolled up and it had like wax on seven different places and most likely some kind of an insignia on that wax. It was sealed with seven seals. In verse 2 it says, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven, on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So nobody in heaven, nobody on the earth, and nobody under the earth, which is hell, of course, they wouldn't be. Then John, who wrote this book of Revelation, the apostle John said, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, now remember that there's 24 elders he said to, to John, he said, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Now I want you to remember this scene in heaven here because it all comes together as we go. So you have this scroll, and I'm going to have to explain what the scroll really is. And finally, somebody was worthy. And they said the only one that was found worthy was Jesus. And then John sees, connected to this revelation about this scroll, now what's unfolding before him is a revelation of Jesus in this way. It says, I saw a lamb that was standing as if slain. So it was the Passover lamb that he saw on the throne. Remember this because it's going to come up here in a moment. So the way that this was revealed to John was there was a scroll and then he saw Jesus revealed here as the lamb slain, like a Passover lamb, okay? And then he mentions the four living creatures, which I've taught on the cherubim. And, and then he said that the lamb, though, in verse 6, the lamb had seven horns. And horns always speak of power. Seven is like perfection, complete perfection. So he has perfect power, 
complete power. And it says he has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in the earth. So Jesus also has perfect vision throughout the earth by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? In verse 7, it says, And he came back and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, remember those cherubim around the throne, and the 24 elders all fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Oh, isn't it a beautiful picture that in heaven that our prayers go up before God like an incense. See, don't ever think that God doesn't hear your prayers because even though you may not see the answer tomorrow, your prayers go up before God like incense, okay? And you can just see this vision of heaven here that, that at certain times it would be like a bowl brought before the Father and there would be incense there and it was certain prayers that it was time for those prayers to be answered. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And so you get that from the tabernacle, but understand that the tabernacle is only a replica, replica on the earth of the tabernacle that is actually in heaven where God's throne is. So verse 9 says, remember they had the harps, they had the incense, and they said, they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you, speaking to Jesus, to take the scroll and to break its seals, for you were slain. Remember, the lamb that was slain. And you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, and all people of the nation or nations. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. Isn't this a beautiful picture of heaven? So we need to look at, well, what is this scroll of such significance that all, it had all of heaven's attention that Jesus would be the one found worthy to open this scroll and nobody else was? What is the scroll? And so I'm going to take a few moments to explain about redemption and then after that, there's two things. I want to talk about the, uh, what was paid for at the cross. And then I want to end by talking about defilement. So the redemption. So there's three main areas of redemption in the Bible. Three. And this is going to be consummated when Jesus comes back again. And I want you to see this tonight because this has to do with the scroll. So how many, as you read over this, you've read this before and you've wondered to yourself, what is this scroll? What is its significance? See, that's what we're going to look at just for a moment. So there's three areas. This scroll has to do with redemption, in particular redemption of land, 
But before we get to the land, there's three areas, all right? So the first area of redemption I want to talk about is the redemption of the bride. So under the law of Moses, there was something called the kinsman redeemer, in Hebrew, the goel. And it was like a leveret marriage. This, what this is, is if a close relative, let's say that, you know, a family, that there was a death of one of the male uh, and individuals in the family and he left behind a wife and the wife maybe didn't have children yet under the law there was a kinsman redeemer that could take her unto himself and marry her and they could come together and procreate and through that continue on that family line now the reason God did this and put this into the law of Moses and it was strongly encouraged that people do this is because if you think about it for a moment where there's a death and somebody was a kinsman redeemer that right there alone will do away with most widows and orphans because a father figure and a husband figure would come in does that make sense and god had such a heart for widows and orphans and so this was a way of providing for the entire family through this it was a a protection but also in this before you know this modern era that we live for a woman to be widowed also meant that she would most likely be very impoverished and have a very difficult time even taking care of herself let alone providing for children so what would happen under the law of moses is that a close kinsman would come in and would marry this woman now you see this in the book of Ruth. How many of you guys have read the book of Ruth? And so you know what I'm talking about. And there's more to the book of Ruth I don't have time to get into, but Ruth, being a Moabitess, was actually a picture and type of the Gentile church, the bride of Christ. Naomi represents Israel and how Israel had married itself to the father, and Naomi was a picture and type of Israel. And Naomi was giving advice to Ruth helping her to understand how to please Boaz. Boaz was a picture and type of Christ, the kinsman redeemer. And so there's a lot to this. It was the setting of Ruth was during the time of harvest. See, there's a lot of prophetic symbolism here. So to sum it all up, without getting any more deeper than that, is that when Jesus comes again, his first advent is to redeem his bride. He's going to bring us unto himself. He is our kinsman redeemer. Is this making sense? So the very first thing is the redemption of the bride. And the second area I want to talk about in the Bible is the redemption of the firstborn. Under the law of Moses, it was required that every firstborn had to be redeemed and not just of mankind but even of the animals the firstborn belong to the Lord and so let me explain a couple things about this first off God's heart about first fruits first fruits isn't the same thing as the firstborn but you see God's heart that he wants the first and best and so what would happen is among the farmers etc whenever they had crops begin to come in they would go out there and they would look at the fields and they would see that this part of the field was the first to grow up and produce 
or they would see some of the fruit trees that this was the first of the fruits that were coming and they would mark that field they would mark that tree or whatever and so that was set apart unto God as first fruits you guys know there were three times a year that men went, had to go to Israel so or to Jerusalem rather so at Passover the Passover lamb was brought into Jerusalem and then it became that during Pentecost that that was the time the first fruits were brought before the Lord and then we know at Tabernacles again there was a lot of offerings that were brought at that time a lot of offerings if you go to look at how many offerings went up at Tabernacles but the redemption of the firstborn so God's heart was he wanted the first fruits the best that would be unto him now with that in mind you look at the firstborn whenever God spared Israel during Passover all of the firstborn of Egypt not just humanity but also of the animals all the firstborn were slaughtered remember and God spared the firstborn of Israel and so God put it into law he said that every firstborn belongs to me and it was God's original intent I believe and many scholars agree with me it was God's original intent that the firstborn were going to be the ones that served at the tabernacle. But at the incident of the golden calf, God saw how unfaithful so many people were. And whenever Moses said, rally unto me, it was the Levites that came unto him. And then Moses said to go out and, and kill those that were guilty. And so they went through and, and took care of that. And so I believe it was at the golden calf incident that God saw the unfaithfulness, but he also saw how the Levites came unto Moses and were faithful. And so God said, instead of the firstborn serving me at the temple, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have the Levites do it. And the tribe of Levi, which is the sons of Aaron or the priest, and then the Levites serve them. But here's what God said. But because I spared the firstborn... He said, you are to redeem them. So among the animals, if it was an animal that was allowed to be offered as an offering like a lamb, that firstborn had to be offered at the temple. They had to be taken along to the temple to be offered. And they could redeem that animal if so chosen, especially if it was something like a donkey which could not be sacrificed. A lot of times they would obviously, um, you know, pay it like a price to redeem it and give an offering to do so but if they didn't do that God said very clearly that that animal had to be killed it could not be used for farm work it had to be unto him does that make sense it belonged to him it was set apart unto him and so I'm saying all of that to help you understand something about the redemption of the firstborn because you see this in in the life of Jesus so he was born in Bethlehem he would have been circumcised on the eighth day and there was a period of time that mary had to wait like a month if i remember right because of the blood flow she was ceremonially unclean defiled for a period of time but after that month she could go to the temple and they had to take with them an offering before the lord that they would present unto him 
but they had to redeem Jesus as the firstborn. So that's why Mary and Joseph, people wonder, well, why did they go to the temple? Because they were redeeming him as the firstborn. So they had to give that offering like a temple shekel. And I suspect, you remember who Simeon was? The guy that saw Jesus and prophesied over him. And he was rejoicing and, and he was saying, it was revealed unto me that that I would not go to the grave without seeing the Messiah. And he wept and he held Jesus and said, my eyes have seen him. I suspect personally that Simeon was probably a priest because priests would only minister from the age of 30 to 50. And he was over the age of 50. He was retired from priestly work. But he wanted the honor of being there at the temple. And people would bring their firstborn. And he would take their offering for their firstborn to redeem them. But he would bless them. And maybe that was God put it in his heart that it was something he loved to do. To be able to hold all these babies and bless them and pray over them, you know. And Jesus was brought unto him. The offering was received. He was, Jesus was being redeemed as the firstborn and Simeon blessed him. But see, the Bible says about Jesus, first off, when he comes, he's redeeming a bride. But secondly, it says about Jesus that he was the first fruits of the resurrection. Now, we've taught about this enough for it to make sense to you. What is it about the resurrection here? It is about the glorified body. So Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning that he raised from the dead and he was the first of, of us to be raised in your body to become a glorified body. Does that make sense? He was the first fruits of the resurrection. And the Bible says he was the firstborn among many brethren. This has to do with that glorified body. See, when you accept Christ as your Savior, your spirit is born again. But your soul is in a process of salvation, so to speak, of being sanctified. Your mind renewed, etc. But ultimately, your body is going to die. But what is the promise? Eventually, your body will be saved because it will be a glorified body that has no sin nature. Your body will be glorified to where there's no, uh, it will not age. There will be no sickness. There will be no pain. It will enter into a phase there where your body is completely purged from all sin nature. It is a glorified body. But that is the final work of the salvation process is the resurrection. Is this making sense? I'm not losing anybody. So you're born again. That's your spirit. Your soul is sanctified. Ultimately, your body will be saved. That's the finished work. So when Jesus comes, he's going to redeem his bride but at the same time, he's the firstborn among many brethren. He's going to give us glorified bodies. It's like the redemption of the firstborn, so to speak. All right, and then finally, the last area of redemption is that of land. And this is really what I want to get to with the scroll. Now see, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, Eve was deceived and sinned. Adam was not deceived. Adam knew what he was doing. Adam saw Eve fall into sin. And he realized what was going on. He knew he was not deceived. And he ate of the fruit 
to lower himself to where she was. He was trying to save her. And in that respect, there was a picture and type of Christ and the bride in that. But Adam messed up because he sinned. If Adam had gone to the Father and worked something out, I'm sure that Eve could have been redeemed somehow. But nonetheless, Adam, when he sinned, the Bible says that you become a slave to the one that you serve, that you obey. And so Adam brought himself under the devil's authority by obeying him, what he wanted. I'm hoping this makes sense, kind of deep tonight. But Adam literally forfeited that kingly role. When God put Adam there, he was the crown of creation. He ruled with authority like a king on the earth. But when Adam sinned and he obeyed the devil, he basically gave that authority over to Satan for a time. And Adam came underneath the authority of Satan. And it was, it was like a passing, if you would, of that authority. That's why Jesus called Satan the prince of this world. And that's why whenever Satan took Jesus and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, he said, these were given to me, I can give them to you. Who gave them to him? Adam. Jesus never disputed that. But Jesus just stayed the course because he knew that his calling was to be the last Adam and he would end up taking those kingdoms back from the devil eventually. See, that's why the Bible says that eventually when Jesus comes, the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. Eventually. Until Adam's lease runs out. Yeah, until Adam's lease runs out. See, right now, the devil has that authority. But eventually, Jesus is coming to take it back. So, here's the way that this works. This scroll is basically a title deed to the earth it has to do with redemption in Leviticus 25 1 through 10 also 23 and 20 through 25 and then you see an example of this in Jeremiah 32 but the law required y'all just look this way and listen the law required that if a person bought a piece of land from his neighbor that the land became his possession obviously however if the closest relative of the original owner came and wanted to repurchase the land, the present owner had to accept the claim no matter how much he desired to keep it. It's a kinsman redeemer. So in the same way a kinsman could come and marry a bride as a kinsman redeemer, in the same way a kinsman could purchase that land because it needed to stay in the family. See, God put it in the law of Moses that land that was given to a certain tribe was supposed to remain in that tribe. And so if somebody, let's say in the tribe of, of Le or let's say Simeon, sold their land to the tribe of Judah, it was not really supposed to happen. And at a Shemitah year, it was supposed to revert back. But if not, definitely at the year of Jubilee, it would go back. But here, here was the law. If a kinsman redeemer came in and wanted to purchase that land back, the owner had to do so. It was in the law to do so. This was to keep the land within the families, the tribes. So here's how it would work. The contract, the recording a sale of property, was a title deed. 
And the first scroll was written. This title deed was written out, okay? And it would be sealed with wax. Then a second scroll was written. It was sealed like the first and on and on. However many needed to be made, different articles, different you know, things that were said in the purchase. But nonetheless, this protected it. Once you sealed it with a seal, this protected it from being messed with. Nobody could forge it. Nobody could counterfeit it. Nobody could mess with what, what was written in it. Once it was sealed, it was done, and it was done in the presence of witnesses. And so the person that sold the land would be given a scroll that was sealed. The person that bought the land was given a scroll that was sealed. But the original scroll was given to the priesthood, and they would take it to the temple and keep it in the temple archives. Is this, you starting to see the symbolism here? You'll see, Adam was given kind of the title deed of the earth, and he basically gave it over to the devil for a time. But eventually, Jesus is coming to take it back because the Father has given him that title deed. Nobody else was found worthy in heaven, nobody else on the earth, and nobody under the earth, and that's a reference there to the devil's kingdom because the devil currently has jurisdiction. We were saying nobody was found worthy to have this title deed of the earth to own the land to, to have dominion to rule over the earth except Jesus he was the only one found worthy Adam forfeited his title deed giving it to the devil but Christ the last Adam was found worthy to open the scroll now, there are four qualifications to being a kinsman redeemer. Number one, Christ had to be a kinsman. To be a kinsman redeemer, you had to be a kinsman, a close relative. So Christ had to be a kinsman to humanity. So this is really interesting. I want you to follow me about this. Four different areas. So God had to take by the Holy Spirit, the very DNA and nature of God Almighty, by the Holy Spirit, and place that into Mary's womb. She was a virgin. There was no sexual thing going on here. This was simply the DNA of God. Y'all hear what I'm saying? The DNA of God Almighty was being placed in Mary's womb and we understand this today in that egg placed in there. And Mary was the, the vehicle through which God's DNA would be given flesh and blood. And so Jesus, the first qualification was that he had to be a kinsman. So God saw to it that God himself became a man. So that he could redeem man. He had to be a close kinsman to humanity. He had to become a man. He had to become one of us. He couldn't do it in his pre-incarnate condition. He had to become a man. So the first requirement is that he became a kinsman for us. And Jesus was willing to do it. He was willing to leave his throne above and to come here and to be clothed in humanity so that he could be a kinsman to us. 
to redeem us. The second requirement would be this. He could not be a descendant directly of Adam because he would have shared in the sinful nature of man. He had to be without sin. So the way God, God did that was he bypassed man and he went into this virgin girl and he placed his DNA, his sinless, perfect DNA within that egg there so that it would produce the son of man who would be sinless. Jesus did not inherit Adam's sinful nature. It was bypassed. So Jesus never had a sin nature. He never sinned once in his life. All of us that were born, you know, as a descendant of Adam, we have a sin nature, we inherited from Adam, and all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory. Amen? But God bypassed that by placing himself, his own DNA, directly into that womb, and there was no sin nature in Christ. So he was fully God, fully man, without sin. The third area, so number one, let's go through them again. Number one, he had to be a kinsman of ours. He had to become a man. Number two, he could not be a direct descendant of Adam, sharing in his sinful nature. God bypassed that. But number three, he had to be able to redeem the earth. It was such a high cost. He had to be able to do it. For a kinsman to come in and purchase that land back, he had to have the money to do it. So Jesus had to have the ability to make that payment. And the cost was very high. So what was the cost? Number one, Jesus had to live a sinless, perfect life, which he did. He never lied. He never did anything immoral. He never wronged anybody. He, he lived in perfect, sinless life before God. And as a lamb without spot or blemish, he then could go to the cross and lay down his very life. And it required his life. It required his life's blood to be shed. And for him to die on the cross, a great payment had to be made for the human race. And for what Adam lost to be restored back again, the cost was high. But Jesus not only became our kinsman by becoming a human being, he not only um, bypassed that DNA of, of Adam and came into the earth like that, but number three, he was able to do this. See, nobody else could die for our sins because nobody else was perfect. Only Jesus could do it. He had the ability so that was number three, the ability. Number four is he had to be willing. Even though Jesus was a kinsman and he was without the sin nature and he had the ability to make this payment, he had to be willing. For a kinsman to purchase back the land, he had to be willing to do it. And that is why when you see Revelation chapter 5, I told you earlier to remember this, that's why you see the scroll connected to the lamb that was slain. 
that revelation of the scroll and the slain lamb were seen together in this revelation chapter 5 because he was our kinsman redeemer he was the passover lamb he was the one that was not only able but willing to pay the price to purchase back humanity and that's why it says that in revelation it says no one was found worthy but it said he was worthy because he purchased by his blood men of every nation tribe and tongue unto god isn't this awesome so the scroll is the title deed to the earth basically what adam forfeited the devil took it for a time but when jesus died on the cross now he was worthy now he was our kinsman and he he was able and he was willing and he did pay the price and so now the title deed to the earth with seven seals was handed to him that he could redeem the earth and there's coming a time when he comes that these three things he that shofar will sound the dead in christ will rise and there's going to be jesus was the first fruits of our resurrection but there's going to be this glorified body that we're given and there's going to be the redeeming of our bodies this this firstborn of many brethren the second thing is he's going to take us away those that are ready and right he's going to take away his remnant bride to be with him at the marriage supper of the lamb and he's going to be the kinsman redeemer of the bride but number three after that then he's going to saddle a white horse and he's going to get on that white horse and he's going to come back to the earth and all of us are going to be following him and this time he's coming with great clouds of glory and authority not as a thief in the night but he's coming to slaughter the enemies of israel and he's going to stand on the mount of olives and he's going to be that stone that you saw in daniel's vision that strikes the ten toes he's going to come and all the kingdoms of the earth are going to crumble before him he's going to be holding the scroll the authority from god almighty over the entire earth and he's going to reign from david's throne over the earth he has the title deed and basically he's going to be saying go bind that devil and throw him in the, into the abyss and get rid of that antichrist and false prophet and they're going to be thrown alive in the lake of fire and he's in the enemies of israel are going to be slaughtered and he's going to separate the sheep and goat nations and he's going to come in and he's going to take over he is the last adam that is going to reign forever that's what this whole scroll is all about the redemption of the earth the redemption of the human race Isn't that awesome? You guys are kind of quiet tonight, but this is some good stuff. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about a couple more things. The fullness of all things. I want to talk about the cross real quick. See, there was a prophecy. Because we're talking about the scroll. We're talking about the title deed. What Adam was entrusted with. He forfeited it to the devil for a time. Then Jesus comes back to reclaim it. 
So let's look at Genesis 3.14. We know the story that the serpent slithered up to Eve. And of course, back then they had legs, but that's another thing. And so anyway, the serpent began to speak to Eve, and Eve was deceived, and she ate because she was deceived. Adam was watching it, was not deceived. He ate out of rebellion. He transgressed. And after that, they began to blame each other for the problems. It ended up, the blame ended up on the serpent in, in Genesis 3.14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. <laughs> How many still get the heebie-jeebies when you see snakes? <laughs> anyway. And so, more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you will go. And you know the anaconda snake still has some little nubs where there used to be legs. Of course, science tries to say that's evolution. How many knows what happened was God said, on your belly you go. <laughs> and their legs shriveled up. On their belly they went, okay? So on your belly you go. And the dust you will eat all the days of your life. But look at verse 15, Genesis 3:15. This was the original prophecy from God Almighty. And he said to the serpent, he said, I will put enmity, hatred, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he, speaking obviously of Jesus, shall crush your head. I imagine the devil just stopped for a moment right there and said, uh-oh. Because God was basically saying to the devil, and he understood it. He was saying, okay, you, you got Adam's authority for a time, but God was saying, I tell you what, I am going to put seed eventually in the woman and she is going to bring forth a Messiah and he's going to crush your head. He said you'll bruise his heel. That has to do with the cross. Satan heard that. I'm sure from that moment he began to study the woman and try to figure out and that's why he stirred up Cain to kill Abel he thought could it be Abel then he stirred up the whole thing about the Nephilim and tried to pollute the human G DNA the human race or Gino but God kept Noah and his family blameless in their generation in their blood then he down through the ages I mean you see the stories that in the days actually it's written in Jewish writings it's not in the Bible but but in Jewish writings that Nimrod actually tried to kill Abraham. I have no doubt that probably did happen. And then you read in the Bible where it talks about Pharaoh trying to kill Moses. Then you see how um, the devil stirred up the whole story in Persia. You know, we, we celebrate Purim every year and it's the whole story of Esther. Trying to wipe out the Jewish race. Why? Because he knew the Messiah was coming through that. And, you know, and then in the days of Jesus, finally the Messiah's come and the devil knew something was up and he stirred up Herod to try to slaughter all those children to kill the Messiah. From, the, from this prophecy, the devil continually tried to stop the seed from coming. He knew that there was a Messiah coming who would crush his head. And in the fullness of time, when it was time for Jesus to come, Luke 1.26, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. 
And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering, What kind of a salutation is this? And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall name him Jesus in Hebrew, Yeshua, which means salvation. His name shall be salvation. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high God. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. The fullness of all things. Is all this starting to come together now? Adam forfeited it. The devil had it. The prophecy was there. Now, the fullness. The Messiah has come. And Gabriel said, this one, he shall reign forever. He will have the scroll from the father of the authority over the earth. Christ is what the Bible calls the last Adam not the second Adam the last Adam so what did Jesus pay for at the cross I, I mean we realize you know there was so much to the cross but let, let me just give you seven quick things about where Jesus shed blood do you remember in the garden where he's he was sweating drops of blood and and then they put that crown of thorns on his head and they beat that crown down into you know, God spoke to Adam when he fell. He said, by the sweat of your brow, you'll toil and labor. It was like a curse there, of poverty and difficulty and struggling. Jesus broke the power of that by bleeding on the sweat of his brow so that we could supernaturally have provision and be taken care of supernaturally, like above the natural course of things. Does that make sense? Jesus' beard was plucked. His face bled. Isn't it interesting that Adam and Eve in the garden is said about Adam and Eve when they were originally there and they were naked and knew no shame. It's said that they were naked, but the word there in Greek or Hebrew rather is Arom. In English, you would spell it A-R-O-M, Arom. And it means partially nude, which is interesting because you wonder, okay, well, they were naked, so what does that mean? Well, the Bible says they were created in the image of God, and God wraps himself with light like a garment. So we know that Adam and Eve, even though they were physically nude, that there was a literal glory, like a wrapping of light around them, and that pressure, that weight. How many have felt, when you got prayer here, some may not know what I'm talking about, but you have felt weighty, the weighty glory of God on you. You have felt heavy. Even when you were under the presence of God, maybe on the floor, you fell out and you felt this weight of the glory. How many have felt that? You know what I'm talking about. It's this weighty, heavy presence. The word for glory is obviously Shekinah, but there's also a word Kavod, which means weighty. So Adam and Eve had that glory. Even though they were physically naked, there was a weightiness of the glory on them. But when they sinned, the Bible says they ate of the, the fruit it says after that that they were naked and they were ashamed. What happened? Well, the word for naked there is erom, E-R-O-M, erom. It's, it's different Hebrew word. And what erom means is completely nude. What happened was 
when they ate of the fruit, all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory. When they sinned, that glory came off of them. And they felt vulnerable. They probably felt scared. They felt the absence of that, that weighty presence of God. And they ran and hid. They knew they messed up. They ran and hid. They were scared. They began to try to sew together fig leaves, which, you know, or have you ever seen fig leaves? <laughs> you would think maybe they'd get elephant ears. But they tried to sew together fig leaves and cover them. So they wanted to get something over them to fill that security, that weightiness again. They were trying to, to substitute the glory. But how many knows nothing will ever substitute the glory? But Jesus' beard was ripped. Do you remember how Moses, when he spent time, that he came down and his face was shining with the glory? There's something that Jesus paid for at the cross, the shame, the humiliation of dying nude on the cross. Roman crucifixions were nude. Having his beard ripped out, bleeding, there was something Jesus paid for there for the glory to come back to his bride. And how many knows that we have the glory available to us today? The veil was ripped. And I'm telling you tonight as we worshiped, I felt the glory of God come in. And you feel that weightiness of his presence and that glory brings security. You, you sense the nearness of God. So number one, the sweat of his brow, the bleeding on his brow. Number two, the nudity and the, the bleeding on his face, the beard plucked. Number three, his hands were pierced. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, the Father could have planned it where Jesus died any number of ways. As a matter of fact, if it was a Jewish execution, Jesus would have been stoned to death. But it was God's eternal plan in this scripture, the one, the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth, okay? The, the ultimate plan of God that Jesus would die by crucifixion. And it's interesting that he was pierced in his hands because the Bible says about us that are true believers, these signs will follow them that believe. In my name, you'll cast out demons. What does it say? You'll speak in new tongues and you'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. There's something that Jesus paid for to be in our hands. There's an authority and a power that's available to be in our hands. But how many knows that God is expecting us to have clean hands and a pure heart? You know, you can't expect that in your hands if they're filthy hands, but there is something that God's wanting in our hands. And I'm sure many of you have felt this too, but I have, I have felt the presence, the, the glory, fire, the power of God in my hands so many times I've lost count. But we've, my wife and I and others here, we've laid hands and prayed over people. And we've seen God heal the sick, deliver people from demonic spirits, and touch by the power of God many times, countless times. But there's something Jesus paid for to be in our hands. And then Jesus also went to the whipping post. The cat of nine tails. How many have seen The Passion of the Christ? It's a difficult movie to watch, but I encourage some that maybe you haven't seen it, you need to watch it. Because it is a depiction of what Jesus did for us, and you need to see that. 
It's not fun to watch. Believe me, I know, but you need to see it. Jesus had that cat of nine tails plow his back wide open. He bled. That blood that came out of his back was payment for our healing. And the Bible says that by his stripes we were healed. So Jesus paid for on his back for us to be healed, spirit, soul, and body. But especially physical healing was paid for at the cross in his back. Another place Jesus bled, this is interesting, was that his heart burst within him. That's why when the Roman soldier drove the spear up in his ribcage, that blood and water came out there because his heart had burst. Jesus actually died of a broken heart. And the Bible says about him, he has come to bind up and heal the brokenhearted. So Jesus' heart bursting like that, a broken heart was payment for our emotional trauma in life to be healed. Isn't that awesome? And as I mentioned, his side being pierced. You know, it's very interesting. In the outer court of the tabernacle, there's blood and water. And also, whenever a woman gives birth, there's blood and water. Jesus, when that... And also, I might add, isn't it interesting that when God was going to make Adam a wife, where did he remove something from Adam? It was where? Out of the rib cage, wasn't it? Out of his rib. It is no accident that at the cross that Jesus was pierced in the ribs. Because what was happening there, that blood and water, Jesus was paying for that he would have a bride. He was also blood and water like in a birth. He was paying for God to have children. And again, that goes back to Revelation 5. It was saying, for by your blood you have purchased men of every nation, tribe, and tongue unto God. You are worthy, worthy as the lamb who was slain, that you have paid for men by your blood to be purchased unto God, redeemed unto God. His side was pierced. And finally, this is interesting, his feet were pierced. Do you remember what God told Abraham to walk through Canaan? He said, I'm going to give this land to you and to your descendants forever. And he said, I want you to walk through the land of Canaan. And Abraham walked and he said, everywhere the soles of your feet tread, I will give it to you. Isn't it interesting? And I remember when reading about the, when Jesus landed on the, the Gadarenes and there was, you know, one, there's a focus on one demoniac, but there was actually more than one that was there. But as soon as Jesus' feet touched the soil there in the Gadarenes, I mean, literally read the story. As soon as he got out of the boat and his feet touched the soil, those demonically possessed men just started manifesting demons like that. What happened? The Son of God's foot touched their soil. And they felt it reverberate. There is an authority. And I don't fully understand it, but there is something about everywhere the soles of our feet tread, God will give us dominion, give us victory. 
I wonder why God permitted the, the children of Israel to send in the spies, even though it was going to end it. Because everywhere the soles of their feet tread, see, God was going to give them. And, and you think about them, why did God have them march around Jericho so much? Why didn't he just have them just walk up to the city, blow the shofar? Because everywhere the soles of their feet tread, God was going to give them dominion. Does this make sense? There's something about our walk that where we walk, there's dominion, there's authority. And Jesus paid for that in his feet when, he, when they were pierced. Those are just some things, uh, revelation about the cross is certainly not exhaustive. There's a lot more to what Jesus did on the cross. But here's what I want to close with is keeping yourself pure from defilement. I want everybody to give me your best ear. This is not in your notes, but I want you to hear me. And I'm really concerned about this because I believe that we're living in a time where there's a lot of defilement. I've preached this enough where River of Life knows what I'm talking about. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, but he's wanting his bride to have that veiled life and to live as a bride without spot or blemish. And how many knows that the Bible is very clear that Jesus is coming for a bride without spot or blemish? That's very clear in the scriptures, isn't it? He's not coming for a filthy, stinky, nasty bride. That's not what he's coming for. He's coming for a bride that has made herself ready, that's been purified. And so I'm going to read a couple scriptures and just share as I close this out. Revelation 21 verse 5, it says, He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these words. Write, rather, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to one who thirsts from the springs of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. How many knows that we are called to be overcomers? That's important. We're called to overcome our struggles. Everybody that accepts Christ as your Savior, there's going to be things that you have to overcome. There's going to be sinful struggles. There's going to be battles. Everybody has it. It's different for each individual. But we have to overcome. And he said, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But look at this in verse 8. But the cowardly, that's the fearful. I talked about it last week. There's going to be a lot of things to be fearful about. We don't need to get in fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear. He's going to take care of us. The worst thing that can happen is, is we die. And if we die, what does the Bible say? We're with the Lord. So it's really not that bad, is it? But the cowardly, the unbelieving, and the abominable. That's what I'm going to come back to. Abominable means in the Greek to be defiled, and it speaks in the Greek of a stench of defilement. Number four, murderers. And Jesus said those that hate from their heart are murderers. Be careful to not get full of bitterness and hate. Murderers will not inherit the kingdom. And then it says the sexually immoral person. And the Greek word there, because I looked it up, is pornos, where we get the word pornography. 
So the sexually immoral, whether it's sex outside of marriage, adultery, you know, some kind of a, a homosexuality or whatever, sexual immorality, including pornography. The Bible says if you look with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. There is a sexual immorality in all of that that defiles. And people that practice that, they live in that, in sexual immorality, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is not just in Revelation 21, 5 through 8, but it's also in Galatians 5, 19, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. It's all through the word of God. And it says this, and sorcerers. That implies they're people that are practitioners of the dark arts. Witchcraft, various forms of that, consulting the dead, scrying, which has to do with reading, like divination where you read palms or crystal balls or the zodiac or whatever type of information there through the dark arts. Sorcery also implies drugs. We're living in a time like no other time probably in human history where because of modern technology and, and etc the ability to have widespread drugs in society but the word there for sorcerer is pharmakeia and it's where we get the word pharmacy from and it's drugs are y'all hearing me and idolaters Obviously, people that go to pagan temples and bow down to different types of idols, which I might add, Roman Catholicism is replete with idolatry. But all idolaters, and let me say this, an idol is anything in your heart that is too important. God wants to have no other gods before him and no other gods alongside him. He wants the place in your heart of being number one. He will not share that with anybody or anything. So all idolaters. And then finally, all liars. God takes lying very seriously. We better be a people that keep our word. Look at what it says. I'm just reading it straight out of Revelation. It says, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So the overcomers inherit eternal life with god but the cowardly the unbelieving the abominable the murders the immoral the sorcerers the idolaters and liars their place is in the lake of fire but what i'm concerned about i just want to zero in on one of those tonight and that is the abominable dealing with defilement let me read one more scripture second corinthians six fourteen. It says, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light and darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, which is a spirit of lawless? And what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? So Paul's trying to say here, look, it's either going to be of God or it's of the devil. You don't have it blend here. And he says this, for we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, and this is important, please hear me tonight. Because guys, listen, 
this is not being preached hardly anywhere. Y'all help me preach this. This will go out through the internet. And I'm going to believe that this is going to get places it needs to get. I'm telling, when I tell you that this is not being preached hardly anywhere, I'm not exaggerating this. So it says this, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. But look at what it says in, first, in 2 Corinthians 6, 17. This is New Testament. This is from the Apostle Paul. And he said this, therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. How many knows the Bible says to come out from among them? And do not touch what is unclean. Do not be abominable. That's a defiled individual. So let's talk about defilement. And I want to close with this. Defilement. Obviously, living in sin is going to defile you. We know that. And things that would fall under that category, not limited to, but would obviously be sexual sins, the occult. And then Acts chapter 15, I believe, uh, the early church leaders said, make sure and tell the Gentiles to abstain from sexual immorality and idolatry and from blood, talking about eating blood and blood rituals, things like that. So there's things that, as far as sin goes, that can really defile you. Obviously, we know that sin defiles, okay? But what I'm going to talk about, this is actually something I find rather interesting, is this. That even though you don't necessarily commit a sin, you can still be defiled. Just follow me. So there's been times that I remember one time I was heading to church. And this was many years ago. And at the time, it was back when, you know, you had to wear the suits and things. I'm glad those days are gone. I don't miss them at all. Okay. So you had to wear the suits. And as I was going through this gas station, filling up with gas back then, you had to go in and pay. It wasn't pay at the pump. And I remember going in, giving the cash or whatever. And it was a smoke-filled place. So you come out, you know, you're heading to church. But how many knows when you come out of an atmosphere like that, you smell like cigarettes? Yeah. So even though I wasn't the one smoking, is this making sense? It's kind of a picture and type of what I'm talking about. Even though you don't necessarily commit a sin, just like that smell, there can be things that you're around that can defile. But I'm going to explain it here in just a moment. The places you go, the company you keep. How many knows the Bible says, do not let a bitter root spring up among you and what? Defile many. As you know, somebody can get full of bitterness and poison and they go around through the church, I can't believe this person, and they start spewing all that bitterness on everybody else and that bitter root spring up in them, but they have gone through and defiled just about everybody they come in contact with. Is this making sense? The places you go, the company you keep, the conversations you participate in can defile. It's interesting that Paul said here to come out from among them. And I think about the, the parable of the wheat and tares. 
tares look exactly like wheat and they grow up together so their root system can get entangled. So you can go in and start trying to pull up a tear, but you're going to get a wheat with it. Let me just say be careful because you can get entangled with the wrong people. And they can pull you down with them. I remember one time my wife and I were walking down. It was actually in Grapevine. There was this square. They have these beautiful lights up every year around Christmas time. And we were just going through there. And there was a door open. There was some restaurants and different things out there. And this particular place we walked by and there was some music going. And we said, I really like music. And this guy was standing right there by the door playing the guitar. I'm a guitar player, so I'm watching him. And just for a moment, I was thinking, hey, let's go and listen to these guys because he was really good. But when my wife and I started looking at the place, it realized it was just a bar. <laughs> People sitting around drinking and smoking. We just kind of looked at each other and was like, nah, just walked off, you know. That was our past, not our present. I believe the Lord will send you as a missionary into places on an assignment for an assignment to win souls. But there's a big difference between going on an assignment and hanging out with the wicked. And everybody knows that. Some people just justify their sin. So the places you go can like spew like a vomit on you, if you will. The company you keep you can sit around over dinner after church with some people and they sit here and just run down the, the pastor and the church and they complain and all this stuff. And you get up from the, the meal feeling like you need a bath. Let me give you some advice. Quit hanging out with them. Because if you're not careful, they're going to defile you and pollute your life. The entertainment that you allow in your life, be careful. There's things that you can watch in television, movies, things you can listen to in the entertainment industry that really can defile you. And it can defile your home. There's things that have to do with witchcraft. And I'm going to tell you that, you know, this has been going on now for a while. You know, my wife came out of, of a family involved in witchcraft, and I've had to minister to a lot of people, and I know kind of a lot about that scene, and I'm just telling you, and she'll confirm this, that some, not all, but some of the pop concerts and things, the imagery, what they're doing, what they're saying is reminiscent of a satanic ritual, and it's intended to look like that. So, what effect is that having on people as they watch that filth? You see what I'm saying? People go to certain concerts and they go there taking, you know, some kind of recreational drugs and they go there drinking alcohol and they get in this kind of altered state and they go to some of these concerts and, man, some of these concerts are very demonic. What are they opening themselves up to in that altered condition? I'm not saying all of them are that way because they're not, but there are some that are, and you know it. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? You know. You've seen it. There's some of the, not only heavy metal, but there's some of the rap and the pop concerts, etc., that have a very, very satanic undertone there. There's, you know, pictures of them having blood coming out of their mouth, eating blood. There's, there's various pentagrams and occult insignia. That, why are they wearing this stuff? If they're not into it, then what's the game that they're playing here? 
It, at best, they're simply leading others astray. My, I suspect that they're involved in it personally. There's illicit sexual things that are in a lot of entertainment now. People are half naked. They're dancing a certain way, very provocative. There's actual sexual moves in the dance. And it's, it's meant to, to arouse sexual uh, desires within people. And it's defiling them sexually. It's affecting their minds. There's graphic, way too graphic, uh, violent slasher movies or just fear and, and graphic bloodshed. And that defiles. So the entertainment that you allow in your life can absolutely defile you as a person absolutely as you're driving down the road listening to some of that filth that just defiles your vehicle and as you watch it through your television screen absolutely it is releasing a defilement right into your home people watch it in their bedrooms before they go to sleep at night it defiles their bedroom and they say, well, I'm not doing it. No, you're not, but you're still being defiled by it. And so that defilement begins to attract the bugs. See, if you were to come in here tonight and we were to take an old trash bag out of the dumpster over there, and it's got some old food from the jack-in-the-box over here, right? It's a half-eaten hamburger. <laughs> it's, got, it's got all kinds of nasty stuff. Okay, let's bring that in here. And let's open it up and dump it here on the floor and wait about three weeks. What do you think is going to be in here? What's it going to draw in here? All kinds of critters, my friend, <laughs> are going to find their way in here. Are y'all seeing what I'm saying? In the spiritual realm, it is no different. People are allowing all kinds of defilement into their home, and it's drawing all kinds of spiritual critters into their home. In the atmosphere of their home, and not only their home, but on them. And I'm grieved because many times, a lot of places people go will never deal with it. I wonder, I, it, this grieves me, I say this with a sad heart, how many people go week in and week out to church now and they never get cleansed from their defilement? There should be a call that's going out from pulpits for people to repent and get things right with God. And when people really repent and they confess their sin, they're convicted. See, when people are preaching the truth under an anointing, it brings a conviction. I've seen people that as I'm preaching, they start feeling uncomfortable. They start squirming. They're moving. They're itching all of a sudden. <laughs> they're, they're, they're thumbing through something. They're, they're white-knuckling the chair in front of What is that? That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the response. See, the same light, the same heat that melts wax hardens clay. I've seen some people that will weep and repent and get right with God, and I've seen other people that want to shake that off them and go right out back into it. They don't want to hear it. But see, if we'll deal with it, we'll talk about it. If, if we'll preach the truth, there's a conviction and the Holy Spirit will draw people to where they'll confess it. Lord, forgive me. I didn't realize I was doing this, but I repent. 
forgive me, Lord, wash me in your blood. And when I leave out of here, whatever I need to change, I'm going to change, but I repent. And when people do that, the blood of Jesus just washes them clean. And I'll tell you something else. When you have the truth of God's word being preached under the anointing, Ephesians 5 says there's a washing of the water of the word of God. Just by mere fact that you're listening to anointed preaching will wash you. Did you know that not only that, but the Holy Spirit is described like rain coming down and like a mighty river. And whenever we pray for people, the washing of the Holy Spirit will just cleanse you and purify you from all that defilement. You know, we go through this life and there's things that are not even our fault. There's defilement. Did you know that before the priests could go in to minister before God and burn the incense in the holy place, they had to go before the laver and they had to wash their hands and feet. Why? Because the dirt of the world was on them. They didn't necessarily do anything. They just picked up the dirt from their normal life. You go to work. You go through your normal life, encounters throughout the week, and without even realizing it, you, you pick up some dirt. But, oh, you come into God's presence, and he washes that off you, and he purifies you. I think about years and years ago, before modern understanding medically, that there was doctors that would you know do different things for example they would deliver a lady's baby and then they would go and do something else maybe do a surgery on another person and they they didn't know to wash their hands a lot of times they would be transmitted things from one to another and people would get really sick but here's the thing they learned that they need to wash their hands before they do something see there's there's something there where God wants to purify us and cleanse us. Let me say this too. This just is coming to me under the anointing. But those of us that are going to be praying for people, the Bible says don't lay hands suddenly on other people, thus sharing in their sin. There's times that I've ministered and prayed for people, and I've, I've, I've seen I've, so many people deliver from demons. I wouldn't even know how many at this point. But we've prayed for people, and they're delivered from demonic things, and they're, they're healed, and you, you pray for people that have come out of a lot of deep, dark sin. You lay hands, you're praying, you're ministering, and God's cleaning them up. And, man, they come up saying, I feel so radically different, but yet sometimes I've left out and I feel kind of dirty from their sin. And I have to say, Lord, just cleanse me fresh, wash me, purify me. He will. He'll clean you up, but be careful because don't lay hands suddenly because you can share in other people's sin. You can be polluted by other people's stuff. Did you know, and I'm sure you do, that what you put in your body can defile your body? You better believe it can. That's why I don't personally get into all this alcohol stuff. And, and let me tell you, that scene of, of tobacco, and I promise you in the days to come, more and more and more and more about drugs, you know, and all this stuff about alcohol and all this. Let me just tell you that things that you put in your body can defile you. You can justify it all day long. And people say, well, you know, God made the, the marijuana leaf. <laughs> well, yeah, he did. He also made poison ivy doesn't mean you need to roll it and smoke it amen common sense the things you put in your body i promise you will and here's the thing the way i look at it is the way i'm preaching tonight is so unpopular right now in a 
I, I say this in love, in a rebellious culture. I mean rebellious. Don't want to hear it. Very unpopular. That's why so many places out there won't touch it. But you have to love God more than man's acceptance. And even though this type of preaching may cause less butts in the seats, <laughs> less, less offerings or whatever, if some people listen, it can save some and it's worth it. I would rather my voice save some than to be standing up with a large crowd that many of them will perish because there's a lot of pulpits that won't preach against sin and won't help people anymore. I don't feel that that is loving. I feel when you tell people the truth, and don't get me wrong, there's going to be people that don't want to hear it and get mad at you. And they'll turn around and attack you. They don't want to hear it. They think you're an idiot. They, they call you all kinds of names and all this. There was, a, there was a minister, I'll give you a true story, a minister that was praying for people on the altar and this young couple was there and, and, and they said, we want you to pray God's blessing over us and prophesy over us and all this. And he goes to pray for them and the Holy Spirit said, no. They're shacked up together living in sin. There's no way God's going to bless sexual immorality. And so he just simply asked the question, well, are you guys living together and you're not married? And they said, yeah. And he said, okay, well, you need to repent and then I'll pray for you. They turned around and stormed out there and flipped him off. But yet they're saved, right? <laughs> okay. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> wow. True story. That right there is a perfect example of this culture right now. Just tell me what I want to hear. Appease me in my sin. But what you put into your body can defile you for positive. You're also marking your body cutting up your body different people that are cutters the tattoos the piercings any type of marking and cutting up the body you better believe that defiles your body and i'll never forget one thing the bible's clear about it there's people that want to do it they're going to do it whatever but i remember that there was a time i was just simply talking about this and i was in a home for troubled teens and they had had all kinds of stuff like that and I said, if you want me to pray for you, then you need to repent. You need to take out the piercings or whatever. You need to anoint those areas with oil, and then I'll pray for you. Well, a whole bunch of them wanted to get prayer. So they began to disappear to the bathroom to take care of whatever they need to take care of. And they get the oil, and they disappear again. They're anointing themselves wherever they need to anoint, right? And so they come back, and there's a group of them there. And they were, they were being serious about it. They heard, they heard me talk about it. They had never heard it before, and they wanted to be free. Some of them, when I'm talking about cutting, I'm talking about, you know, you know what I'm talking about cutting, but also what about suicide attempts? See, cutting, see there's, a, there's a spirit of death. And I said, you need to anoint your wrist if you've done that. And so they all came down, and any type of burning, and there's gang initiations where they'll maybe burn something into their flesh, like some kind of an insignia. I said, anything like that defiles you if you want to be free so like i said here they go all over the place and anointing themselves and so after it's all said and done i remember standing up there and i just remember taking authority 
I said, in Jesus' name, I break every curse and every work of Satan. I break the power of the enemy, and I begin to take authority. And I heard just different people, I mean, a lot of them start gasping, <gasps> manifesting. And it was like this black cloud came off them and went right out the back of that church. And they were just kind of in awe, like, whoa. They felt a release of something. Places can be defiled what happened in them. I always pray over hotel rooms when I go in there. <laughs> Big amen? Yeah, always pray. You're, if, you, if you buy a home and you're not the original owner, you need to consecrate that home. But places can be defiled. You know, if there's a place, and I'm not necessarily talking about a home, a hotel, or just a place where there's been murders or there's been satanic rituals or whatever, even though those things, excuse me, those things are not happening now, they have been defiled. And somebody needs to come in behind and cleanse it. I heard about this one hotel manager that they, you know, this wasn't his choice, but they, they just let different groups come in and rent things. Well, some Haitian voodoo practitioners came in and rented one of their halls. And they were practicing voodoo in there, man. And he said after that, he said all kinds of weird stuff started happening in the hotel. Well, I would imagine so. But somebody needs to go in behind there and cleanse that. He needs to call him a preacher and say, man, come in here, help pray over that room. They didn't defile that place. Objects can be defiled. Things that have, have been used for ungodly purposes. Objects can be defiled. You need to pray over things. Some things cannot be cleansed. Some things just need to be destroyed. You're not going to anoint a, you know, a hustler or a Playboy magazine or something. Okay, that thing just needs to be burned with fire. And you're not, <laughs> you're not going to be able to get you a little Buddha and anoint Buddha and put it in your house. It don't work like that. You, God's not going to play with those games. Any type of objects that are occult, pentagrams, connected to other religions, it's sexually explicit or whatever, don't waste your time trying to cleanse it and play this game of, you know, um, listen, I don't know what type of game some people try to play, but God's not going to play hypocrite games. You're either going to have him or you're going to have those things, okay? So get all the junk out, all those ungodly objects out, and other things that are just innocent but maybe have been defiled, you can pray over that and God will cleanse that. Did you know that a woman can be defiled by being around some filthy mouth, lustful man that's talking sexually perverted to her? She can be defiled just by being around that type of man. She can leave out of there feeling like, man, I need a bath. Children can be defiled by living with wicked, evil parents. Even though they're good kids, they can be defiled. Their parents allow all kinds of filth to go on in that home, drug use, violence, you know, all kinds of evil entertainment that they shouldn't be allowing kids to watch. Wicked parents can defile children. And the last one I would say is marriage beds can be defiled. People that are not keeping their marriage bed holy. The Bible says that marriage is to be honored by all and the marriage bed undefiled. And that implies they're single. Like between you and your spouse alone, there's no adultery, there's no pornography, 
There's nothing in that marriage bed that would bring some kind of a pollution. Marriage beds can be defiled. Is this making sense tonight? And so I would just encourage people to take inventory because in Revelation, uh, and thank you guys for supporting this type of sermon because I promise you there's people that are going to hear this that have never heard it before and may not ever hear it again in the day and age we're living. But the Bible says the abominable, their place will be in the lake of fire. The abominable are those that are defiled, and it implies in the Greek a stench of their defilement. So what does God say? Come out from among them, my people. Be holy, be set apart. Touch not the unclean. You need, there's some people that you need to separate from because their roots want to get entangled in your roots and, and the devil's wanting to use them to pull you down. There's things that now as a Christian that I just don't do anymore. There's places I don't go and hang out. There's people that I don't hang out with like I used to, those type of people. And there's things that I just don't do anymore. How many can say that? As a Christian, God calls us to be set apart unto him. And people should look at us and see something different. And it grieves me today because there's such a worldliness and a compromise in, in professing Christians that a lot of times people look at them and say, well, man, hey, if they're going to heaven, I'm going to heaven. They're no different than me. See, that right there is the problem. And let me close with this scripture, and I'm getting a lot of amens because we do a lot of witnessing, and we've seen a lot of this. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus, this is the words of Jesus Christ, and I close with this. Jesus said this. Jesus said many, everybody say many, many, not a few, not some, many. What does that mean in the Greek? Many. <laughs> okay. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, they called him Lord. Lord, we did all these things. We prophesied in your name. We, we cast out demons. We, we healed the sick. We did those things. You can't do those things unless you're a part of the household of faith. The Bible even bears that out. Try to cast out demons if you're not a Christian. Ask the seven sons of Sceva and the Jewish priest how that worked out for them. So you, you're not going to do these things. You're not going to call him Lord and participate in prophecy and healing and deliverance unless you're part of the household of faith. But Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. We have to know him. That means a relationship. Not just know about him. Demons know about him and tremble. I'm talking about know him. And number two, he said you practice lawlessness. That means you lived in unrepentant sin. That's what that means to practice lawlessness. That's why the Bible says, right where I read tonight, Revelation 21, 8, that these will not inherit the kingdom. They will go into the lake of fire. Paul said in Galatians 5, 19, those that live according to the flesh, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he says, these that are like this, the sexually immoral, etc., they will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's clear. So as I preach on revelation, here we are in the end times. There's going to be a lot of deception. 
There's going to be a lot of worldliness. There's going to be a lot of compromise. There's going to be a lot of people call themselves Christians but don't live a godly life. Come out from among them. Be separate. Touch not the unclean. For the Lord is coming for a bride without spot or blemish. And I've done made up my mind. I don't care what everybody else does. I'm going after God, even if I got to go alone. And I'm telling you something, my wife knows that I mean that. And I believe she knows, she means it too. And that, that means even if you go alone, you've made up your mind that I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm going to live the life he wants me to live. Even if people hate my guts because of it, I'm going to live for him. All right, let's close it out. Lord, we thank you for this time. We bless you. Let this be sealed tonight. Lord, I pray that this will go out and accomplish what it needs to. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, just close down the recordings for me. And let's go ahead here in just a few moments. Just, just a moment. We'll pray for people. I right, was giving her a chance to get settled. You know, she's a um, professional sign language interpreter, and she has a lot of deaf people that, that know her. And so they're Facebook friends with her. And she 